It's Friday, April 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden on Thursday addressed the issue of gun violence in the country, calling it an epidemic and an international embarrassment. He also issued six executive actions geared towards ghost guns, pistols outfitted with stabilizing braces, red flag legislation, and more reports on gun trafficking from the ATF. He also called on Congress to enact more permanent legislation. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico, joins us for more. Next, the Derek Chauvin trial continues as we heard from experts saying that George Floyd died from a lack of oxygen and not drugs or health conditions. We also heard from Minneapolis Police Chief Medaria Arredondo and several other officers that worked with Chauvin testify that his actions were not necessary and out of line with police training. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News, joins us for what some were describing as the crumbling of the blue wall of silence. Finally, there's a new shortage hitting restaurants because of the pandemic. Ketchup is getting hard to come by. More precisely, ketchup packets have been hit by supply chain problems, and the market leader Kraft Heinz is having trouble keeping up with demand. Heather Haddon, restaurants reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the shortage of everyone's favorite condiment. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I want to see these kits treated as firearms under the Gun Control Act, which is going to require that the seller and manufacturers make the key parts with serial numbers and run background checks on the buyers. Joining us now is Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Anita. Thanks for having me. President Biden on Thursday announced a few executive orders on gun control measures that he wanted to take. You know, he was saying that what's going on with guns right now is an epidemic and an international embarrassment. Uh, He kind of tried to stress the point, talking about the shootings that we saw in Atlanta and Colorado and just kind of how many shootings there's been in between, how many deaths we've seen in between. So the problem of, of shooting in the country is still an ongoing one. So, Anita, start us off with how President Biden painted the picture of the issue, and then we'll get into some of the executive actions he was taking on it. Yeah, I mean, he used very strong language, as you mentioned, to talk about this issue. It's something that he's been talking about for a long time. He worked on this issue as a senator. And if people remember after the Sandy Hook shooting in Connecticut in 2012, President Obama asked him to lead up the effort. He was vice president, of course, to ask him to lead up the effort to try to get some gun measures passed in Congress and make some recommendations on executive actions then. So he's been talking about it. He talked about it on the campaign trail. So none of this rhetoric was really surprising, but it was very strong. I was really struck by one statistic he did mention, which is 106 Americans die every single day due to gun violence. And it was striking because we tend to just talk about and hear about and think about those mass shootings. But I think his point was things are happening every single day, whether we know it or not. So what did we see uh, as far as the executive actions, as far as those go? What did we see in those? I, I, we saw something about action on ghost guns. We saw stuff on um, uh, red flag laws. They, they want to put out a model red flag law so that states can kind of adopt their own things. And then some reports that would be coming out of the DOJ as well. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I put them in sort of three different categories. You kind of mentioned one, which is asking the Department of Justice to do a variety of things. And you mentioned several of them. I'd, I'd say the two sort of strongest are these regulating of two different things that aren't really regulated at the moment or not regulated to the way that he wants. One are those ghost guns, which if people don't know, they're sort of homemade guns. You can buy a kit and put it together yourself. And they're not considered firearms because there's no serial number on them. This would allow them to be regulated. And what that means is people would have to undergo a background check to buy them. And then there was this other regulation of these things that are called concealed assault style firearms. And what that means is you can buy this type of gun, but it's not considered a rifle, even though it looks like one and acts like one. And so what they're saying is they want it to be regulated and people to go through more hoops to get it. And uh, they're pointing out that this was the type of gun that was used in that shooting really recently in Boulder, Colorado. And then there was sort of two other things that he really did. This was one pot of things asking the Department of Justice tax. Then he has said that he wants to spend $5 billion, which is a significant amount, over eight years on gun violence prevention, basically, in communities of color. Of course, he needs Congress to do that. And then he nominated someone for the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and Explosives Agency that deals with firearms. And it's a very interesting nominee. He's someone who is from the gun control side of things. He has been working at Giffords, the group that is looking for gun restrictions. And so it's the first director, if he's confirmed, that would be from that side of things. What do we see as far as possible lawsuits to any of this? I mean, some of it seems pretty simple. Like you said, uh, you know, the DOJ is going to publish reports on things. But do we see any potential on that front? Yeah, we are already seeing pushback from the NRA and other groups like it, and even some Republicans in Congress, but also Republicans in the states. And that's where you're probably going to see some of the lawsuits. I think it's the two, the ones regarding ghost guns and and this other one about the concealed assault style firearms. They're the sort of the strongest, I think, that impact the most people. And you might see some pushback. What we're hearing from Republicans is that they're saying he doesn't have the authority to do this. This is something that Congress is supposed to do. It's not something the executive branch is supposed to do. So it's more of a power issue and it could go to court. President Biden also said, hey, this is what I'm doing right now. But he called on Congress to take more action. The House passed a few bills on background checks and some other gun restrictions. You know, he called on the Senate to work through that. But I mean, that's almost a non-starter there with how close the Senate is split 50-50. What would get done there possibly? It doesn't really seem like anything could get pushed through. Democrats have momentum and, you know, this is one of their priorities. And as you indicated, they've passed a couple bills that they probably passed some more. And the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said they will vote on them. But as you indicated, they're going to need 10 Republicans to vote with these with the demo, all Democrats for these bills. And it just doesn't look like there's support for that. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Do you have an opinion as to when the restraint of Mr. Floyd should have ended in this encounter? Yes. What is it? When Mr. Floyd was no longer offering up any resistance to the officers, they could have ended their restraint. Joining us now is Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Janelle. Thanks for having me. 
We are following along in the second week of the trial against Derek Chauvin, the former officer charged with murder of George Floyd. We heard a lot of testimony this week. More recently, we heard from Dr. Martin Tobin. He's a lung and critical care specialist who was testifying that uh, it was a lack of oxygen that killed George Floyd. Uh, obviously, we see, we've seen all the video from Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck. You know, he says that that was uh, pretty much the case, the lack of oxygen that did it, not the drugs or, or other stuff that the defense is trying to throw in there. But one of the other remarkable things that we saw this week was kind of this uh, crumbling of the blue wall of silence, a lot of people have put it. We saw numerous other law enforcement officials and colleagues of Derek Chauvin testifying that whether it's from the training or his actions on that day were not the way it's supposed to be done. And it's remarkable because, uh, you know, a lot of times we've seen other officers maybe not come to the defense, but not speak up when it comes to their fellow officers. And that's why they call that the blue wall of silence. So Janelle, tell us a little bit about what that concept is and then what we saw during the trial. So the blue wall of silence at its core, it's an unofficial oath among police officers not to report a colleague's wrongdoing. And that includes criminal activity. So if you were to witness them commit a crime on an assignment or responding to a scene, you would just keep that to yourselves or keep it among yourselves. What we're seeing in Derek Chauvin's trial, which, like you said, it is remarkable. Not only are some of his former colleagues testifying against him and testifying for the prosecution, but his own former boss, the police chief, it's very rare for a police chief to testify against an officer. And that's why it's getting so much attention. And on top of testifying, they're saying extremely damning things. They're saying that Derek Chauvin went against their training. They're saying that his actions are not reflective of the department. I don't know if you are aware, but in June, about a month after George Floyd died, the police chief had put out a very sharp, harsh statement criticizing all four officers who were at the scene. And he said outright that one officer at the scene was responsible for George Floyd's death and the other three did nothing to stop it. And that obviously he was saying that Derek Chauvin was responsible because he was the one who knelt on his neck. So we are seeing, at least with regard to this case, the whole blue wall concept come undone. And I think from the experts I spoke to, I spoke to both legal experts and law enforcement experts, and they told me that the reason why is because they believe that these officers and the police chief himself found Derek Chauvin's actions indefensible. And they think that had these officers or any officers really, whether they're in Minneapolis or elsewhere, publicly tried to defend Derek Chauvin, it would indict kind of policing as we know it. And the police chief was careful not to indict the entire profession. He has singled out right. these specific officers. And in order to perhaps maintain morale, he did so. And he also has made it clear that he has taken issue with these four officers. He's not trying to suggest that there's a problem with the entire Minneapolis Police Department or policing as we know it. And let's run down briefly who we heard from. We heard from Police Chief Madaria Arredondo, we heard from Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman. He's the longest serving officer in the Minneapolis Police Department. Inspector Katie Blackwell, she's the commander of the training division. And then Sergeant right. David Plager, he's uh, uh, Chauvin's former supervisor. Our former supervisor, yeah. yes. He responded to the scene after George Floyd had been taken away in an ambulance. And his testimony was also damning because 
again, not only did he say that the restraint should have ended sooner, he also went further and he, through questioning, he explained that Derek Chauvin did not immediately divulge that he had knelt on George Floyd. And it wasn't until after George Floyd died and he started, Sergeant Hauger started probing more and asking more questions. Then it came out that Derek Chauvin had knelt on George Floyd's neck. And even then, he didn't say for the extent of time. He wasn't transparent in how long he had knelt on his neck. So these four people combined, I think they really helped the prosecution. And like you said, it may have larger implications. The experts that I spoke to are hoping that it does. They're hoping that it opens conversation for why this hasn't been done sooner. They're hoping that it stands as a precedent and it encourages other officers across the country that when they see their colleagues doing something they shouldn't be doing or abusing the badge, so to speak, that they report them and call them out so that they can maintain integrity for the policing industry itself. And this case specifically, obviously, we have the video. Many, many people have seen it. You know, Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck for over nine minutes. That's different. Uh, and you made mention in the article, too. You know, it's different than the act of shooting somebody, which does require those split second decisions, whether right or wrong. You know, those can be argued on their own cases. But this is different. It's not that case of like, oh, man, I'm scared for my life. I shot him. This was this deliberate act that took place over the course of minutes. And this could be another reason why these other officers are speaking out against that, that it was wrong, because it wasn't that split second decision. Experts have said, and also even while they were going through jury selection, a lot of jurors who were dismissed, they said that they cannot be impartial. They feel like it was just that egregious. They've made up their minds. They have determined in their hearts and in their minds that what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd was wrong, and they would not give him a fair shot at a fair trial if they were selected for the jury. And it is unique. Not only is it the length of time, the mere fact that we have a video It's very rare. We have many videos. It's very rare in a criminal case that you have so many videos from so many different body cameras, from so many different angles. There's so much video that it makes it hard to turn a blind eye to this, regardless of where you stand on the issue. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Many of them um, are still having to use ketchup packets because of health or sanitary reasons during the pandemic, and it's made them very hard to buy and very expensive. Joining us now is Heather Haddon, restaurants reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Thanks so much. One of the most interesting stories that have gone on throughout the pandemic were stories about supply chain issues. We went through it with toilet paper. We've gone through it with many other industries as well. And I don't wish for any of these industries to go through any any bad things, but I just love these stories. It's so interesting how small, minor inconveniences or disruptions really have these larger ripple effects. And uh, right now, what we're seeing this, uh, you know, whole year into the pandemic and more restaurants are starting to open up, the country is starting to open up uh, back up a little bit more. We're seeing a shortage of ketchup, not necessarily just uh, ketchup overall, but ketchup packets as, uh, you know, restaurants, big chains and mom and pop shops all relied on using these ketchup packets to get the condiment out to customers. Uh, So, Heather, tell us a little bit about this shortage. Yeah, so it is specific to restaurants. It's, like you said, restaurants that are reopening from the pandemic and are needing to serve ketchup in ways that they didn't used to. So a lot of these full-service restaurants typically had a 
you know, a bottle of Heinz on the table, glass bottle, and now many of them um, are still having to use ketchup packets because of health or sanitary reasons during the pandemic, and it's made them very hard to buy and very expensive. So the price is up something like 13% from last year, um, as just like you said, the supply chain has really changed abruptly, and it's left these restaurants scrambling. So tell us how important ketchup is. It's the most consumed table sauce at U.S. restaurants and even more at home. Yeah, it's incredibly important. The sales last year in restaurants, which was obviously depressed because of the pandemic, it was something like 300,000 tons of ketchup sold to food service. And people spent something like a billion, I think it was a billion dollars on it in retail last year. So it is hugely popular in the U.S. It's very important to restaurants. You know, you think burgers and fries and all the other stuff you put on use ketchup. And the market leader really is Kraft Heinz. So the Heinz signature bottle you see on restaurants, it's really, it's got a dominant market share here. And because of this, they've been really facing a lot of this supply change rerouting during the pandemic. And they've had a huge demand increase in retail. And then you know, had to shift a lot of their attention in their warehouses and factories to that and away from restaurants. And now that restaurants are, you know, ramping up again, they've had to switch back. And that's tricky. Tell me the story of Chef Justin Fraser and Blake Street Tavern in Colorado, because they are Heinz people. They've been using it for 18 years. And when the shortage kind of started to happen for them, they went to an alternative and then they had to apologize to customers for not having their trusted Heinz. Yeah, so the shipment um, they usually expect came in short, they said, from the distributor. They just didn't have any Heinz at time, so they had to run out and just grab ketchup, I think, from you know a third-party supplier or some of the other restaurants I talked to even went to Costco to just try to get some more ketchup. And so, yeah, the owner, who is real Heinz loyalist, did have his servers apologize to customers. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways, it's just almost symbolic, all the things that restaurants have had to go through. This is yet one other thing. I mean, they've been dealing so much. So, you know, they don't want to lose their customers right now that they're finally coming back. It seems like most people have been understanding, but they have been trying to be extra sensitive. And that's why these supply chain issues are so interesting to me. A year down the road, we're still feeling the effects of that. Uh, You know, the, the companies haven't been able to adjust as quickly enough. And as you mentioned, you know, some restaurants going to Costco looking for alternatives that trial and error of how to serve the ketchup to coincide with the rules of, uh, you know, you can only use a single serve plastic containers the, you mentioned some of the restaurants using steel souffle cups that often ended up in the trash or in paper cups, but that would dry out the ketchup. It seems silly to hear about it, but these are the difficulties that restaurants had to go through to get it right for their customers. Yeah, no, there's a very practical element of running a restaurant. I mean, you have to, serve things in a certain way. I mean, they're very regulated. Um, a lot of these states did originally put in pretty strict uh, reopening rules. A lot of them have now been a little more relaxed, but customers also come to expect things to be in single-serve packets or make sure it's sanitary. Um, they don't necessarily want a bottle on a table while cases are still around. So yeah, they're having to meet all these different requirements and with you know a supply that is Really going back and forth still. I mean, over a year into the pandemic, we're still dealing with this. Heather Haddon, restaurants reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.